Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, tonight we have a special I Have a Fever and a Really Terrible Chest Cough uh, thing going on episode. So if my voice sounds a little bit weird, that would be why, but the show must go on. Um, today, once again, V Radio is honored to have Professor Roger Stahl from Militainment Incorporated and now from um, Returning Fire, Interventions into the Video Game Culture. Um, first of all, before we get started, I want to thank everybody who has donated to support V Radio. You guys did exactly what I was asking, which is if a lot of people give just a little bit, then that's fine. It's not that I don't appreciate it when you guys give those big chunks of money, but you know, if you want to do that, if it looks like for some reason there's no donations coming in, that's different. But overall, just a couple dollars per listener is fine per month. Um, so um, that being said, um, exactly what I was asking, which is if a lot of people give just a little bit. Oh, uh, Roger, you're going to want to pause the show. That's why you're hearing us twice. Um, you have a, a link open with the show. Um, anyway, it happens all the time. <clears throat> So, can you find it? Uh, yes. If it comes down to it, just close your browsers. But um, in any case, um, thanks again to everybody who supported V Radio. Um, now tonight we're going to be discussing Roger's new film. Uh, as I had said earlier, Returning Fire. Uh, you can go to my recent review of the film. He gave me the uh, privilege of being able to get a sneak preview of the film for the purpose of review. Uh, you can read that review at my blog by going to v-radio.org. Um, that's v-radio.org with a, basically a minus between the V and the radio. Um, and if you hit blog, then you'll see my review. So... Um, yeah, Roger, I can still hear the show on whatever other computer or whatever you're doing there. Uh, I don't have a browser open. I'm trying to fix it. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, if it comes down to it, um, you may have to, I've, I've never had this happen before. You may have to restart, but, um, either way, although it sounds like it just cut out. Um, anyway, um, well, Roger, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience again. Uh, you never know when there's new listeners. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the show again, Neil. Mm -hmm. uh, my name is Roger Stahl. I'm an associate professor at the University of Georgia in the communication department. And I uh, do a number of things, including uh, study the relationship between war and entertainment, uh, which is the subject of today's interview. I made a film a couple of years ago that Neil mentioned already called Militainment, Inc., and also a book by that name that came out last year which studied the military entertainment complex in relation to video games, reality television, film, Pentagon Hollywood relationships, and other things like that. And I decided I would sort of finish off that stream of research, or that interest, with a film about not just a critical approaches to the military entertainment complex, but a film about how people were engaging the complex through creative forms of activism, and that is the subject of this new film that Neil wanted to talk about today, called Returning Fire Interventions in Video Game Culture. It's also got another subtitle for Another Market, Hacking War Game Culture, so those two together might give you an idea of what it's about. 
Right, and um, I have to say that the film definitely uh, impacted me a lot. I felt the need to write the review immediately. Um, I think that a large part of it was, just as I brought up during the review itself, was just that it really helps you uh, to think about the impact that the marketing of this sort of thing has on you, the way it changes your outlook, the way it changes your, your, you know, your dreams. It's one of the things that I said in my, uh, my recent um, review was that I remember when militarization of the culture, you know, made me from just wanting to be an astronaut from, you know, to wanting to be a fighter pilot, um, you know, to essentially, I don't want to say worshiping, but seriously thinking very highly of weapons and, you know, it's that techno fetishism thing that you were talking about in militainment that I had never really thought about before. And then I was like, you know, I caught myself just the other day thinking, man, the YF-22 Raptor is a really pretty jet. I'm like, I'm talking about a freaking killing machine. You know, you don't even think about it. Um, And uh, they they do a really good job of uh, really making it interesting, which is something that, you know, you you pointed out in, you know, militainment and that is also true in the video game culture in a way that I think is, uh, in some ways, you know, it's even worse, especially since we have our kids involved with these projects you know our children are playing these very very realistic war games that are getting more and more realistic all the time you know i know just the toys and the cartoons the gi joe stuff when i was growing up in the 80s you know did a lot for my militarization attitude um and the video games of the times i mean were much more primitive but i still remember playing like you know the rambo game on nintendo and you know different games like that um and uh it, it definitely contributed a lot to what I was thinking about doing, and that's that kind of leads you onto the the, the line that it, it's all part of a uh, essentially a, um, a master plan, so to speak, to get people interested in the military. And I still remember it was one thing I didn't put in the blog was like after I got out of high school and had already decided I wasn't going to join the military, they kept sending me stuff for like years, hoping they could rope me in. Um, you know, and it's the other unfortunate aspect that I that I left out of the blog that I remember learning back at that time of my life was that a lot of my friends were kind of, I don't want to say forced into joining the military, but when you go into all of the, uh, unemployment places, uh, you see recruitment posters, you know, I have two different friends who due to the depressed economy in Michigan joined the military because they couldn't find any other ways to feed their families. You know, it's it's almost like they don't have to have a draft. They'll just, you know, tank the economy until people have no choice but to get a job on the, on the Army or the, you know, the Marines or whatever. But um, as far as factoring in on, on this issue in particular, I thought about not just about the war aspect of it, but the violence aspect of it. We talked about this on a previous V radio show. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the Grand Theft Auto series, but there's one in particular called Vice City, which is basically based on kind of the the cocaine time period of uh, the 80s, complete with the music and the uh, the Miami Vice look and everybody. And I remember that most of the people that I know, probably three-quarters, if not 90% of the people that I know who played that game, did not log on even to take part in the story. Um, And although there was a pretty involved, you know, typical mob story, most people didn't even bother with that. They just logged on because of the way the game uh, interface was you could just randomly attack people on the street so they'd just get a baseball bat and just randomly beat somebody to death and it was very graphic there'd be a pool of blood underneath them and everything and I'm like you know this is just you, you don't really think about it until you know you've put things into perspective but 
the the dehumanization that comes out of this, the notion that that could ever be part of entertainment, you know, is is pretty sad. Yeah, well, that's one of those games that falls under the genre of quote unquote sandbox games, which is pretty freeform stuff. I, you can all, almost call them id games, you know, id id games, uh, because they uh, really allow people to act out some of the darkest fantasies. And, you know, have been sold for that purpose. And you're right, you know, for something like uh, Grand Theft Auto, the entire series, you know, the the storyline is secondary to, you know, whether you have uh, sort of the option to beat somebody with a baseball bat or shoot up a a mall or, you know, screw a prostitute uh, and, you know, kill a prostitute after you're done screwing her. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. I I suppose it really... um, exposes the sort of dark underbelly of humanity. Um, but, you know, we have all kinds of media that uh, exploit that id aspect. Um, and uh, Grand Theft Auto just does it expertly. Yeah, and in, in a way that I I didn't really realize how bad it was until, you know, because, like, I mean, I didn't generally just find myself randomly walking along, beating up passers-by, but you do, like, one of the things about that game is you can do all kinds of crazy stunts with the vehicles, and this tends to get the cops after you, of course, and, mm-hmm. you know, so there's that aspect of it. But I, that's another thing that I recognized in our culture, um, you know, I participate in a live-action role-playing game, for example, and there are a lot of the, this current generation in particular, they like to they like to play the part of criminals in the role-playing game, because they can go be bad, so to speak, in a world where there isn't really any uh, consequences for their actions. You know, they can be free to, you know, be criminals in that setting and, you know, kind of get their fantasy of putting their, you know, their their nose in the air up at their bosses or whatever, or they throw off their shackles, so to speak. And that kind of brings me back to one of the other things that I mentioned in the uh, the blog was that, you know, I have a friend who plays more Counter-Strike than any human being should ever do anything. And, uh, you know, I re- he, he worked in the, um, you know, the restaurant industry, which is a very stressful thing, especially if it's fast food. You know, and he'd come home and he'd want to shoot people. You know, I mean, not literally, of course, but in the same fashion, in a very realistic fashion, he would just sit there and play Counter-Strike for hours and hours and hours. It's all the guy would do. You couldn't get him out of his room if it was time to play Counter-Strike. You know, and he got his uh, his aggressions off that way, essentially. You know, that that fantasy you're talking about. You know, and I understand that too. I mean, that's I think that's one of the things, especially when you're talking about the non-military aspect. Like, if you've ever seen that film with Michael Douglas uh, falling down, you know, that guy kind of lives a lot of people's fantasies for the first three quarters of the film. You know, um, and in a lot of ways, I think it's a it's a reaction to some of the problems we have in our society that just forever put us in a position where we feel like we're downtrodden or being pushed around, and you know, and in some cases, the reaction to that is negative. And it's unfortunate that that's the way things are glorified. You know, it's 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 tough, really. I mean, it's the other thing I've noticed is that the the good guy is really falling out of fashion. You know. Uh, in any of these times I play any of these online games, for example, I find myself being one of the only people willing to play one of the quote-unquote good characters. Everybody else wants to take the negative point of view. And I, and I see that becoming more and more prevalent over time. Um, we don't have a lot of, uh, you know, like, you know, I always said to people, like, you know, when the Star Wars Episode One thing came out, nobody remembers who 
Qui-Gon Jinn is, but they remember who Darth Maul is, you know, um, that kind of prioritization of the bad guy is, it's kind of sad, actually. It's one of the reasons why, you know, my own children, I'm very careful about what I let them watch and what I let them play. Um, but as far as to the, the military aspect of all of this, you know, coming back to the, the main point, um, you know, we we talked, you know, there were the, basically the film that you made covers three different stories. Um, the first of which was about a fellow, uh, I think, named Delape. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, uh, close. Joseph Delap. Delap, right. He um, basically just took it upon himself one day to start logging into America's recruitment cough, uh, America's army, <laughs> and uh, uh, basically go in there and, you know, you have these people that are endlessly playing this free online first-person shooter that's of the first order. They put a lot of money into this. I mean, it's just as high quality as Modern Warfare or any of the other games that you got out there that people are paying for. And the whole purpose of the game is to glorify being part of the army. And, you know, they put you in situations that are just like Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you know, and so he logs in there to start bringing some very real realism to the game. He starts reading off the, uh, you know, the names and um, death, basically the, basically the names of soldiers who had died. Um, I don't I remember how much detail he got into. I, I, like, did he say how they died or where they died? He didn't say how or where. Um, he gave the name of the soldier, the date of death, the age of the soldier when the soldier died, and um, I believe the rank. And those were the sort of, that was what was entered each time he addressed a soldier in the game. And he did so through the text messaging system in the upper left-hand corner. He basically right. typed, it, typed it in all caps, so he tried to draw attention to it. And then it sort of floated down the screen and disappeared eventually, and he um, would continue typing in names until he was shot. And that whole process took about 30 seconds. <laughs> right, right. Because he dropped his weapon, and, you know, in order to type. Uh, but then, of course, would, you know, observe, sort of sit back and observe what other players' responses were to this very elegant and simple provocation. You know, that's an interesting point that he brought up that I, I is another aspect of realism that I think is generally left off the table, you know, and that is something that, I, you know, because as I said in the blog, I was being very, you know, I was making a lot of confessions myself about how I recognized what had been done to me via your work, you know, recognizing what had been done to me by the, you know, the military industrial complex and such, you know, via your work, I got to really understand why I felt the way I did about the military and, you know, and, one of the things that they leave out of the realism factor, because they were bragging that their their medics were more realistic in America's army, because you'd have to do, like, you know, real medic-like things. And then the guy pointed out, he's like, you know, he's like, that's not real medic stuff, because in real medic stuff, you know, you get maimed for life. And, you know, they don't, they don't put the part in the game where you're being pushed around in a wheelchair or... Uh, where, you know, maybe you know, that's if you survived, of course, um, you know, they don't put the part in the game where your family is gathered around mourning you and, and you know, at your funeral and one of them hands you a folded American flag. That part of the, the, the soldier's career who's been shot is, of course, left off the table because that wouldn't be a very good recruitment tool. And it certainly wouldn't sell a lot of video games, you know, and that's... <laughs> Um, a dark aspect of this, especially in these first-person shooters, you don't even think about it because you respawn within 10 to 20 seconds, sometimes even faster than that. 
you know, and you're just right back in the game all over again. And it doesn't even occur to you that you essentially just represented an entire life. You were a person, you know, you were representing the avatar of a human being, you know, who likely had parents, you know, who had uh, people who cared about him, uh, you know, who had perhaps dreams and aspirations. You know, that's that's an aspect of war that I think gets left off the table entirely too much, you know, and that's why I often tell people, and I'm going to bring it up again, and I think I brought this up in the last show I had you on, Roger, you know, with, with Peter and Ben Stewart, was the, the fact that, um, you know, uh, we we don't, realize you know also the victims the other side of it you know it's it's like when people die in war it doesn't even really occur to us that these are people we see maybe the little snippets of it on you know on cnn you get better footage better meaning more graphic on al jazeera because they're a bit more honest in my opinion um you know you just you see people crying you know and, and you don't really think about the fact that they're they're real people you know that there's a person on the other side of that that there's somebody's son on the other side of that, that there's, you know, maybe somebody's brother, you know, or in the, in the case of the, the, the girls, you know, obviously you got children and women getting killed in these wars too. Um, that's basically, you know, another aspect of it that's just completely left off. And you certainly don't see that in the video games. Um, you know, it, the whole aspect that there are innocent people that are getting killed. And that was another point that you made in the film that was very poignant was that the the violence in these war games ironically is not very uh is not very graphic um you know you just kind of get shot and then you just kind of fall over you know and that's it there there isn't really much more to it than that ironically these the the grand theft auto games and some of the fighting games for example are more graphic than these military games and that's a pretty obvious ploy to you know to make war look clean I mean, wouldn't you say it depends i you know, it seems like the games that approach actual ongoing operations around the world tend to shy away from really graphic depictions of war. So, in a sense, the, the more realistic, the more verisimilitude there is in a game in terms of its relationship to an actual conflict, you know, the, the cleaner it is. And that, that's, that's sort of a rule of thumb. Although I do believe that um, if you look across the entire spectrum of war-themed video games, all the way from you know, Call of Duty and Medal of Honor, you know, World War II games through Vietnam and, and current conflicts. I think there is a broad trend toward uh, more graphic depictions in general. And I think the general revulsion that often results in political resistance to these types of games um, is, is being gradually worn down. I think as a society, we're being acclimated to more gruesome games in general. Right. Um, but oddly enough, I mean, it, you don't seem to see it much in the, in the military games. And that's the ironic thing about it is, especially in some of these games, you're using weapons that would cause a lot of carnage. Like, you know, modern warfare two, you're using grenade launchers, rocket launchers. Sometimes occasionally you're firing from vehicles, you know, and it's, and it's so everybody, basically everybody lands on the ground dead with all their body parts still attached you know, with no obvious sign that they're dead, they could just as easily be unconscious as far as the eye of the beholder. Um, and that, I think, kind of plays into this notion that it allows you to continue to think that war is cool still, um, you know, that it's that it's interesting or, you know, that there's no uh, repercussions for what, you're, what it is that you're getting into. 
Well, it's and, important for a game like America's Army, where they're actually trying to recruit people into situations where their lives might be in danger. Uh, it's not as important for, you know, Call of Duty Modern Warfare, you know, uh, right. where there's a little bit more license to show that kind of, you know, death and violence and gore in the service of, um, you know, giving the game a lot more punch. Right. And that's, you know, um, the one thing that I remember, because uh, I asked myself a while ago, because I, um, you know, I, I still played these games for a long time, even after I became an activist. And I and I asked me, or I asked myself, why is it that I can still stomach these games? And one of the other things that they have in those games is that the plot, you generally are actually a good guy. You know, you're a good person in those stories. You're you're getting the bad guys. You know, they don't add any of the other aspects to it. They don't add the military-industrial complex aspects, the corporations or corrupt politicians. You know, they don't add any of the other factors of war into it. And, of course, you're never in a situation to, say, kill any innocent civilians. That doesn't even get, you know, you don't even put that on the table. Um, you know, so none of that, th those aspects of war are not included in their simulation. And it, it reminds me of the same way, I mean, uh, military recruiters get a pretty bad reputation, almost justifiably so, because they tend to be very dishonest, you know, with people who are considering getting into the military. They give you some pretty unrealistic expectations going in and, you know, a lot of my friends thought they were going to have some other job when they got in. They end up in the infantry just like everybody else. Um, you know, and it's basically, uh, I think especially since we don't have a draft, um, maybe the, you know, the Pentagon and the other associated military elements within our government think that, you know, their only tool really to recruit people at that point is propaganda, you know, getting us in. Uh, to risk our lives, you know, in the name of, you know, uh, patriotism is what they're telling us. But, you know, as the work of General Smedley D. Butler uh, calls for his book, War is a Racket, which you can find for free on PDF. It's really old. You know, you find out once you've been in the military for a long time, you start to get a feeling for, you know, who you're really fighting for. And, of course, none of that's ever in the video games. When you play through Modern Warfare 2, there are a couple situations where you've got to do some really bad things, but for the most part, you're always the hero. And I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, those games, you know, they, they managed to slide by because uh, you're not really contemplating what real war would be like, you know. And in, in some cases, like the Metal Gear Solid games, um, that character actually starts turning into a peace activist over the course of the story. And unlike Modern Warfare 2, they do get into some of the... Uh, down, you know, basically the down parts of being in war. Like when they, they shoot this one character, Sniper Wolf, she's a female Kurd, you know, and she goes into telling her sad story about what happened to her in Iraq and things like that. And I was like, wow, this is kind of unique because they don't normally get into this in these military games. It's all about, you know, G.I. Joe is great and, you know, everybody go along with that. You know, this, you know there's all this glory involved, you know, Snap 2, Salute. You know, salute the flag. Everything's great. You know, mom and apple pie. You know, leave out all the little negatives. <laughs> so, now I gotta ask. Um, I mean, uh, first of all, uh, the only the only mild criticism I had was that the film was kind of short. Is there any reason for that? Well, um, I was interested more in kind of um, tailoring the film to audience attention span. You know, right. 40, 40 minutes is about 
I mean, it's not feature length, but it's uh, it's really good for the genre that I was working in, which is mainly like classroom video, 40 minutes to an hour, and also a sort of television documentary uh, in the genre of something like PBS's Frontline. So, yeah, it's a little short. Um, you know, I had a range of activists that I was interviewing, and I was kind of surprised that a lot of them weren't very as articulate as I'd like them to have been about their own projects, uh, right. reflective about them. And though they had really interesting ideas, very provocative kinds of images and whatnot, uh, they weren't allow, uh, exactly able to contextualize them and talk about the significance of their projects or even really why they were doing them. Um, I, you know, I, I think they had an intuitive sense of why they worked and right. what they were saying. Uh, but, you know, the three that I focused on, I decided to go all out, you know, give 15 minutes apiece, let them tell their stories in depth, uh, provide a lot of context, kind of fill out and really curate the story so that um, it did a lot more, I think, in the video than it did in its actual execution because all right. the, I tried to add all these layers to it. So, um, you know, I, I did pare it down to three because I thought they were three really powerful stories and they complemented each other well, and they fit within, you know, the 40 minutes to an hour that I was kind of wanting to fit them in. Right. No, and it, you know, in the end, I'm still very glad I watched it, obviously, and I'm fully intending to buy it when, you know, whenever I get the money. But the, uh, um, I was curious if there was, you know, some other reasoning that that explains it perfectly. And I know what you mean about activists. It's kind of sad that, you know, it, sometimes you run into these kids and it, it's like they. Uh, they're activists because they think it's cool to be anti-conformist. They don't necessarily understand why they're doing so. Maybe it's just because it's them appealing to their uh, inner need to be rebellious or whatever. And I, and I get what you mean there. Um, but the the kind of moves us on to the the second story. We were just talking about Counter Strike, and that would be the nice lady that you had on from Velvet Strike, uh, I guess, which was a large group of activists who were going into um, the game Counter-Strike and spraying, like, peace messages and stuff on the, the walls um, within the game. Uh, do you want to give any details about that? Yeah, that was headed by Anne-Marie Schleiner. She's a hacker and hacktivist and computer programmer. She also designs games, uh, currently living in Singapore. She had to move there with her husband. Um, he is um, – he was – I believe a legal, uh, recently, uh, he had his green card, he was living with her in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, but they were doing some installation art projects that were criticizing how the U.S.-Mexico border was being policed, and the INS came down on him and at the last minute denied him citizenship, and so they ended up having to move to Singapore. Kind of mm -hmm. a weird story. Um, yeah. It was, she was working in Singapore when I interviewed her, which was a nice trip. Uh, among other things, and um, her group was about, mm, I think, four or five people, mm -hmm. called themselves Velvet Strike, and they developed a couple of different strands of activism within the Counter-Strike online world, and one of them was they developed these, what they called sprays, which were a kind of game hack that allowed a, a player to go in and... Um, spray paint the wall of the virtual environment with some kind of message or image. And some of these were kind of cute. Some of them were kind of corny. Uh, right. Some of them were interesting and provocative. Um, 
you know, like, uh, you know, a huge kind of spray that said, war is funny. Another one was hostages of military fantasy. Um, Anything from peace signs to teddy bears and hearts. Uh, One of them that I thought was really clever was, you know, and this speaks to your point before when you talk about the invisibility of, you know, um, civilians on the ground in some of these games. Um, They spray painted a hopscotch sidewalk mark on the ground, um, which is the last thing you're going to see in Counter-Strike. I mean, it might as well be on the moon, even though it, you know, has many of the accoutrements of a Middle Eastern town. Um, because there are no civilians, there's no sign that anyone lives there, um, just a, a bunch of people with guns running around. Right. I mean, and the guns sound and uh, are designed in the same way realistic guns uh, are, guns work in the real world, of course, and the sound of you know, somebody pulling a pin on a grenade is perfectly reproduced, but of course there are no civilians in sight. There are just empty buildings that you can run through. That's uh, an so interesting that's, point. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, adding a hopscotch, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, hopscotch game on the ground uh, is a, a very interesting counterpoint uh, to that world uh, and kind of draws attention to things that have been written out of that world. Right, and that's that's an interesting point, actually, that you'll notice even within our our news coverage, they do their best to keep it just as uh, sterile, I guess the word would be. It's like they sterilize the life out of the, the battle scenes. And I think that's one of the reasons why that uh, WikiLeaks video um, was, that was linked to, you know, with the Apache helicopter shooting up those people on a street corner was so shocking to us is because we're accustomed to seeing the, the filtered version of it where, of course, you're not going to see anybody's body parts flying all over the place. And one of the more enraging things about that that actually is more relevant to your point about the hopscotch is that, you know, the guy drives up. He doesn't really know what's going on. He's in a van. He's got his two kids in the back. You know, he sees a man, you know, lying on the ground dying. So he gets out of his van to help the person, you know, and then the helicopter is begging to let them shoot. Um, you know, then he, they get him on there and then they just light up the, the you know, the van with, uh, uh, you know, the Apache's gun, which is capable of killing people within a vehicle for sure. And then, you know, the thing of it is, is that at the end of all this, you know, the pilots say, yeah, you shouldn't have brought your kids to a war zone. And I'm like, their, their home is the war zone, dipshit. <laughs> Pardon me for the, you know, for the little bit of an S-bomb there, but I just, that where you know this is where they live. That's why he was driving down the street with his kids in the car. This is where he lives. You know, this is you know, and that's the funny thing is like as you pointed out in Counter Strike, it really is. There's you know, there's no evidence of anything really. You know, it's sort of um, yeah, basically you you basically see an area with a lot of buildings in it, but there's nobody there. You know, and obviously there's no evidence of children or toys or anything like that. You know, there's no evidence that anybody actually lives there. It's like there's just these buildings that are all over the world that have no other purpose other than people wandering around and shooting each other in them. You know, um, and that that leaves another aspect that just kind of uh, once again sterilizes it, keeps the whole human element off the table, so that people don't have to be distracted by little things like reality. Um, and that's it, it's interesting that you know when you know, and that's when we were just talking about that is obviously is that the uh, you know the way that the news coverage works. You know, I, I remember mentioning this in the blog too, was the the fact that the majority of the kill shots that you see on the news are, you know, really blurry, low quality uh, laser guided bombs <coughs> shots that you're seeing from 
you know, the plane's point of view where you don't get to see anybody dying, you know, uh, you know that it's implied. And of course, you know, the reason that they need to do those shots with the laser guided bombs and all the advanced technology is to justify the military industrial complex's, you know, budget. You know, we have these super fancy weapons and we're going to put them on as commercials in the news over and over again to get, you know, to convince you that you need them. And then that was the, and the funny thing is, is that within, for example, Modern Warfare 2, uh, there's a point at which you're on the um, AC-130 gunship, which is basically a cargo plane rigged with all kinds of big guns, and you're you're doing that same kind of stuff. It looks exactly like what you see on TV, as you compared, you know, in the beginning of your film. This is the video game. This is the real, you know, the real thing. You know, the news coverage, and you're blowing up people from really high up, and and they're just kind of moving dots. They don't look like people. You know, you're not going to see their arms flying off or anything. You know, it's just, it's a person, but you don't really have that in your mind from that distance. And the whole time you're just thinking, man, this is so cool. I'm using these extremely destructive weapons, you know, <laughs> and that's, and, and you, and you find yourself enjoying it because yeah, man, do you remember that cool part in you know, Modern Warfare 2 where you got to blow up people from a thousand feet up and use all kinds of destructive weapons? You know, um, that, that was the, um, the other aspect of it, you know, that I think that, that when you brought it up in militainment, you're talking about the news coverage. And when you bring it up in returning fire, you, it's when they take the news and take it not only from the perspective of entertainment, but they turn it into a game, something that you let your kids do, you know, in in your living room. Is they're blowing up random people, you know. Um, go ahead. Well, that was a really important moment the, in modern uh, Medal of Honor, what you're um, describing. Or was it Call of Duty? It was Medal of Honor, right? Which one? The uh, the uh, C-130? AC-130, was it? It was Modern Warfare 2. Okay, it was. Okay. Pretty sure. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, that was a point when long-distance warfare, you know, the kind of image of long-distance warfare that the population had been trained on, you know, which is... You know, the shot of the ground, infrared little dots, bodies running around, explosions, um, AC-130 gunship pilots talking about uh, there he's going into the mosque, we can't shoot that, or he's going into this little house, light that up. Right, right. But, you know, the fact that it could enter into a video game with such ease um, means that it had already, on television news, been translated into the uh, visual language of the video game already. You know, it had already been translated for the person sitting on the couch watching CNN or Fox into a kind of very pleasurable kind of interactive experience almost, right? Where right. Or gazing and scanning the ground and shooting um, little dehumanized dots with one's eyeballs. Um, so, you know, that was an interesting moment where you know, this kind of very low resolution long-distance war image was translated directly into the visual language of video games and so easily as well. Right. And that's, you know, the the messed up thing about that, in addition, like I was remembering from the blog, I talked about the A-10 Warthog. And ironically, in your militainment film, you know, there's a guy who says, I really like the A-10 Warthog. It's my favorite. You know, it used to be my favorite too. And one of the things that got me over that was uh, there's a documentary, I think it's Iraq Conspiracy, but it's a brief documentary about Iraq, 
And it's about the uh, the time that we had just two A-10 warthogs catch the majority of the Iraqi army fleeing Kuwait, and we decided to open up on them. Um, and, you know, I didn't know – I mean, I knew what cluster bombs looked like on the military channel because they looked like a pretty fireworks display. I had no idea what a cluster bomb looks like when it's used on a human being until I – saw the footage in this documentary where you've got people that are heated up and basically fused to their vehicles. Um, their bodies are just absolutely horribly torn to pieces or, you know, singed to the point of almost not being recognizable. You know, they don't, that's another aspect of that, that, you know, it's like we see these things from the distance. People have no concept of the amount of destructive power that you're raining down on people with these weapons. You know, they don't ever go into the building afterwards and show you what it looks like when you have all these people blown to pieces, you know, and that's like, and to pieces is a really important part of that. And I know I keep mentioning this, but it reminds me of a moment in the film Saving Private Ryan when uh, this GI gets his arm blown off and he's so lost in the moment, he doesn't really grasp or comprehend what it means that his arm is not connected to him. So he picks it up and carries it with him as if maybe he could talk to a medic and see about fixing that. You know, that's the level of desensitization that a soldier gets into in the field. And it almost seems like this could be part of uh, something that is trying to desensitize that, you know, for us here in the, you know, in the real world. And that's, um, I mean, I really hope not. And I, and I wanted to say, oh, this is, you know, this is not that big a deal, but, you know, as I mentioned, you know, the the character in that Boy Who Could Fly film and remembered that that used to be me and that I wanted to be part of this whole thing, you know, um, it, it definitely was real to me um, in, in the retrospect when I sat and thought about it. I'm like, you know, everything about the first uh, quarter of my life was military, everything. Um, I, you know, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, period. You know, that was it. I was absolutely going to do that, you know. Um, and it was all based on the, you know, the video games and the toys of the times and how much that transformed me, infected me essentially, you know, uh, was, was in me from top to bottom. And, you know, I think, I mean, Roger, since, I mean, you've worked so hard on, on both of these projects in so long, I mean, do you, I mean, was there ever a time period in your life that, you know, that you've looked back on now that you've done this work and gone, man, you know, I can't believe I ever felt that way about a fighter plane or, or something like that. Oh, yeah, I went through exactly the same thing that you went through. I mean, I, I don't think it was as intense, mm-hmm. but I had, I, you know, I remember my group of friends, you know, having entire rooms filled with model airplanes, you know, that knew exactly the, the, the specs from, you know, the, the new stealth bomber all the way to the F-14 Tomcat or whatever, you know, knowing exactly when to out, um, having a you know, sneak previews, uh, you know, like model companies get sneak previews of new designs, you know, they come out with the plane even before the military comes out with the plane. We'd be all over that. Um, you know, as of course I got older and, uh, started to sort of investigate, you know, the realities of conflict and got very interested in the first Gulf war. And, um, you know, the fact that, um, it was very pretty, uh, really intrigued me. Um, it was sort of uh, unlike what 
I remember my parents, you know, they talked about the Vietnam War as it was depicted on the news. Very ugly thing for the most part. Yes. Late, late in the war when the press, you know, started following public opinion and then decided they were going to show ugly photos of what was going on. Uh, so, you know, that, that sort of intrigued me at a very early age. I was about 14 when the first Gulf War happened. And, uh, you know, I happened at that time to be on the debate squad. And so investigating that very heavily because it was one of our debate topics. Right. The United States have gone into Kuwait. And, you know, just being really struck by the level uh, that the nation rallied around the flag, the the lack of any kind of discourse uh, regarding the question, even the question of whether or not we ought to be involved in this conflict, and just the sheer beauty and sort of technological spectacle uh, that it represented on on television, you know, coming out of you know fighter plane model culture and coming out of GI Joe culture, um, that hit me. I think in ways and at a crucial period um, that uh, perhaps you know perhaps others who hadn't gone through that whole process might not have felt, but I felt it, and it stirred up a lot of questions as well as sort of you know I was as satisfied as anybody about the beauty of that war and the heroism and the drama mm-hmm. at, at that age. And I, of course, knew no better. Um, but I think I was even more tuned into it as a mode of satisfaction, as a mode of pleasure, as a mode of aesthetic appreciation than most other people just because of the age group I was in, the process I was going through at that point. Which ironically, I mean, that is the age group that's thinking about, you know, signing up. So it, it works out perfectly. You know, yeah. they, they are targeting that age group for sure. I mean, it's, um, I mean, I, I got to imagine, particularly with your work as a professor, I mean, do you talk to your students about this or would that get you in trouble or what? Well, talk to my students about... You know, about this I, this I kind of stuff, right? They're just No, no, I mean, it's in the the fact that they're being targeted you know, by the military-industrial complex for recruitment? Well, you know, it, 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 I've gone through kind of a process there, too. You know, very early on, you know, when I started becoming interested in this kind of thing after 9-11, after 2003, um, you know, March, when we invaded Iraq, um, you know, there was a similar rally-round-the-flag feeling, and a lot of this kind of, like, critical approach to understanding how these images were working was almost, you know, verboten in, in the university. I mean, critically talking about this kind of stuff may have gotten me into trouble. It right. didn't. Um, I was very careful. Uh, but it didn't take long before students, you know, I think it was the next year, I witnessed a dramatic change in the class that I was teaching. It was a special topics class on media and war. And the kinds of discussions we could have only a year after that invasion just changed dramatically. Right. Um, Students would open up. They, um, you know, I wasn't. I, I don't think um, students ever wrote me off or, um, you know, charged that I was anti-American or something like that uh, because we were investigating some of these issues. Uh, but I could tell that the students were a lot more willing to talk about them, a lot more skeptical about, you know, how some of these images and stories were working in their lives. 
And, uh, you know, from about 2004 to 2007, there was a tremendous amount of interest. And then in 2007, just as the story of Iraq and Afghanistan was dropping off the front page and finding its way to page 16 of the New York Times, um, student interest dropped way off. Um, right. Uh, the war just didn't register anymore. It wasn't, it was, it was like a low noise hum in the background of the media scape. Yeah, now it just doesn't exist. It, 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 they're, they're desensitized to the fact that there are still thousands of people dying over there. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's amazing that we can just forget about something like that. And that's, you know, it brings me back to that um, uh, Star Trek episode that I mentioned, um, you know, in the blog, wherein, uh, you know, those people had decided that it would be better to wage war via computer simulation uh, because of the horrors of war. So they decided that they would just, you know, set up a computer simulation. And if you were to team, you know, deemed to be killed during this simulation, well, then you would just go willingly disintegrate yourself because it was more humane that way. Um, and how long the war went on because of the fact that those people were so desensitized to the reality of what it is they were doing, you know, um, and that actually kind of brings me to the, you know, the, the third and final point that I have to admit, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about by, by the time I was finished. Um, and part about that Iraqi gentleman whose son who, or, I'm sorry, not son, um, whose father had been killed uh, by a remote predator drone, which as many people are not aware, the predator drones are in many cases are piloted by people here in the United States. They're not even piloted by anybody over there. You know, and that's the direction that, um, that warfare is moving uh, as time goes on. <coughs> Sorry. Um, and he basically just set up a paintball gun um, and locked himself in a room for 30 days and uh, hooked up the paintball gun to the Internet to see if people would shoot him. Um, you know, I when you look at that, like I said, I mean, now that I'm speaking of it, I'm speaking of it derisively, of course, but like, if you just left the fact that he was an Iraqi out of this and maybe the, the whole fact that we're talking about a war film here, um, you would think that was the most ridiculous thing you'd ever heard. You'd start laughing and be like, oh, where's this website? I'm totally going to shoot this guy. You know, the whole point behind it that was lost on me until you really sit and watch what, what this poor guy is going through, especially since even just this stupid paintball gun um, started to have psychological effects on him. And that reminded me because I've played paintball before and I went out on a camping trip shortly after I was finished playing paintball and I heard like a whoop noise. Uh, somebody had opened a, a bottle or something and I literally hit the ground because I had been playing paintball for three days straight. Huh. Um, you know, and it, you, know, you don't think that it would have an effect on you, but just that noise had a serious effect on me. And, and that's not even something that's going to kill me. Paintballs just sting a lot, enough to get your brain to react, ironically. Um, you know, and uh, but still, um, to lock himself up for 30 days, you know, I still, I just, you know, doing that, I mean, that talking to that guy had to have been a very unique experience, and I, you know, and I'm glad that he did it. I mean, you know, I'm going to give you some, you go ahead and elaborate on that a little bit, and then I'll talk about my next point on that. Yeah, he had been in the United States since about 1991 when he escaped the clutches of Saddam Hussein, who wanted to draft him into the Iraqi army. So this was, you know, 1991 when Iraq was rolling into Kuwait. So Wafa Bilal, the guy that you're talking about, 
escaped uh, and immigrated to the United States, ended up in Chicago eventually, um, and left his family behind. And then as 2003 rolled around, he was thinking about perhaps some ways of engaging war culture as it is happening in the United States. And and then about 2004, late 2004, you said his, his father had been killed. His, actually, right. his brother. Oh, his, okay. His father did die soon thereafter uh, of grief mm-hmm. um, because of the brother's death. But uh, this got... Wafa Bilal thinking about drones, long-distance warfare, disconnection, and how not only the military sees the battlefield now from a station in Nevada with a joystick, uh, but how you know we as a society kind of see it as it is translated through the medium that we are most familiar with, which is video games. You know, perhaps the AC-130 um, gunship level on on uh, Medal of Honor 2. So he devised a, a, an installation, the kind that you talked about, set up a paintball gun with a camera on it and allowed people to go online to this website and move the camera around and the gun, aim it at him and shoot him. And he stayed in this room for 30 days and was shot at about 65,000 times. And 80 million people came to this website and there was a chat room and there was all kinds of conversation. And eventually all kinds of you know, media got involved uh, uh, you know, television, radio, newspapers, and started this huge conversation. Um, I think the this project was interesting because it didn't necessarily moralize, right? It's sort of by word of mouth um, or by viral means. You heard about this site, you go there, and you have this experience where you're, you know, invited to look through this very video game-like monitor or something that you might see on television, kind of this grainy image with a gun. It's even got the gun sticking out from the bottom like a first-person shooter. And you aim it and you shoot at somebody, a live person in a room. You find out this person is Iraqi. You find out this person's story. Eventually all these things come to light. And uh, it's a very transformative and cathartic kind of experience um, and was for a lot of people. And... uh, Wafa Bilal didn't have to make an argument. You know, he didn't have to, you know, directly relate this to video game culture or grown culture, all these things that we're now very familiar with. All he had to do was draw people into a situation where they then had to, you know, they had to confront all these things um, inevitably. I remember when I heard about it, um, I didn't even know he was an Iraqi. And uh, mm-hmm. I went to this room and uh, um, I was going to shoot him. Uh, and then I just couldn't bring myself to actually shoot him, <laughs> point the gun. Right. So I pointed in the in the corner and shot shot the gun. Another student of mine shot him. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know this was sort of before this is the initiation point of the process before you learn his story, and his story really starts to like resonate and uh, you know turn the whole narrative on its head. Um, I wanted to focus on in this film, uh, the whole idea of living under the gun, you know, the sort of experiential level, which is something that he talked about when he appeared in various news venues. Uh, But uh, I tried to curate that as best I could, try to give a sense of what it's like in this room, and also try to connect that to, you know, how 
he was thinking about his family. I mean, his family is still in Iraq. His family is still, as he says, dodging bullets. Um, there's still ever-present kind of buzz of drone aircraft. Uh, Hellfire missile could come from any of those and kill anyone, just like it accidentally killed his brother at any time. And um, you know, um, we don't. You know, we, we we talk about like brutality and gore and the realities of war, people dying, you know, charred bodies and, and whatnot. I mean, really, the reality of an occupation is just the brutality of everyday existence, the brutality of everyday anxiety, uh, the brutality of knowing that, you know, it's difficult to walk down the street and get groceries. Um, right now, you know, they're in my hometown. Uh, in fact, pretty close to where I live, there's an escaped uh, cop killer on the loose right now. And oh, man. And down. And the level of terror that that has inflicted on this town. You know, this guy's going around carjacking people and putting them in his trunk. He killed a police officer the other day. The level of terror that has, you know, descended upon this very small town, Athens, Georgia, is palpable. Um, and, you know, we're just talking about one guy who's running around town um, who may or may not be a threat. But when you're, when you're talking about an entire society, you know, where a third of the population has left and have become refugees, um, two-thirds of the population are still remaining, uh, about 100,000 people, which is about one twenty-fifth of the population of Iraq, up to maybe up to a million, I'm, I'm sorry, which is about one twenty-fifth of the population of Iraq, uh, has been uh, uh, casualties since 2003. Uh, we're talking about, you know, not just a few soldiers coming home with post-traumatic stress disorder. We're talking about on the order of 25 million people who um, are living day-to-day what a soldier who, had, who may come home with post-traumatic stress disorder um, lived for perhaps six months or a year. We're talking about the devastation of an entire society, not just the death of uh, a number of civilians, but we're talking about um, PTSD on a mass, mass scale. And right. we're talking about Iraq and not Afghanistan. I mean, it's, it's, it's just staggering to think about the, the, kind of, the kind of thing that Wafa Bala was trying to represent with this project. I mean, it's uh, a really weak representation of something almost unfathomable. You know, and that's... Um is this conversation is really good. I'm going to extend the show just a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, uh, but basically, uh, you know, you're very right about that. And that's um, especially, maybe I am a little bit more understanding about it because I grew up in the inner city in a really, really, really bad neighborhood. Um, wherein I could be, I mean, I could be shot at at any time. Um uh, it was obviously still nowhere near the scale of what people go through in Iraq or Iraq. Um, that's why I keep telling people to check out the, uh, you know, the film heavy metal in Baghdad, because you're, you're seeing the life of, you know, like, I think it's like five Iraqi young men who speak really good English. So it allows you to um, you know, identify with them a little bit more, you know, and then you see, video like you know it's not just about being a good man and you know and, and staying out of the way and then you'll be all right 
And the situation over there, particularly with some of the crazier people that we have working for us, like Blackwater, you know, that uh, video I'm sure you've seen of those Blackwater mercenaries playing country music and randomly driving down an Iraqi street, shooting up people's cars with the people inside them, obviously, for no reason other than personal amusement. You can imagine what it would be like to live in that situation. And then we wonder why they, you know, we're not popular over there. And that's the the Iraqis that I've talked to when I was running for Congress um, told me that they didn't like Saddam, but you know, and there was certainly an amount of fear with Saddam, but there was still um, a crazy amount of fear in comparison, you know, now over there with the just the endless fighting, and you never know who's going to shoot you. You don't know like whose side you're on, you know, even if you think you do. Um, it, that's that comes back to what we were talking about earlier about that pilots comment on you know well you know that's for what you get for bringing your kids to a war zone you know where are they supposed to go you know and then you got to imagine what was going through that man's head you know he's got his kids um he's got his kids um in the back of his van he sees a man dying on the side of the road he doesn't know the situation and he's got to decide whether or not it's worth it for him to risk his children's lives to get this man in a van to take him to a hospital. You know, these are the kinds of decisions that the average person in America, especially those kids, as you pointed out, who the war just doesn't exist for them, you know, they've never contemplated that. They they don't understand that. You know, that doesn't even register on their radar. You know, and that's one of the reasons I was actually looking forward to, in an indirect sort of way, they were making another Red Dawn film. Um, and this one would be about China. And one of the spookiest parts about it was I've seen some of the YouTube footage, raw YouTube footage that people took because they were shooting this film here in Detroit, Michigan, um, of Chinese tanks driving down the street, you know, and shooting mock bullets at, you know, people in Detroit streets. And how that really messed with me because I've been down those streets, you know, the, the realism of the idea that there's a tank driving down a street in Detroit, you know, uh, was really terrifying to me, you know, in that one moment. You know, it was it certainly wasn't cool, <laughs> um, you know, and it certainly, you know, but and the funny thing is, is that I, I don't think people have ever contemplated that. We in the United States in particular, um, you know, there's one of the things that France pointed out about the um, the Iraq war they weren't so OK with is that they had lived through occupation and they didn't want to see anybody else go through that. Um, and uh, that's something that I think most people in the United States don't really understand. Uh, people in the United Kingdom know what it's like to be bombed, but they've never been occupied. Um, uh, and then there's this group of people who show up here, and uh, they've destroyed all of your infrastructure, and they've, of course, secured all of your oil. And you're supposed to live through that. You know, you're supposed to be somehow through all of that supporting the people that did that to your country, and for some reason they're not doing any better. You know, um, people in the chat room who are asking where you can see my review, if you go to v-radio.org, you will, and then click blog, um, the name of the review is called It's Just a Game. Um, and that actually brings me back, ironically, as I was just going to point out, was that you know, when you're shooting at the quote-unquote Taliban or Iraqis or the terrorists or whatever in any of these video games, you know, they don't leave any of that. They don't put any of that on the table either. You know, they don't put any of the realities of what the motivations of these people might be when they're shooting at you. You know, that that's never part of the, the, the game, so to speak. Because, you know, once again, that wouldn't be appealing. And 
Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, one of the features about of war games in general is that they kind of they shrink the context down to a very depoliticized level. So it's actually possible, you know, if you're talking about something like Call of Duty uh, number two, and I believe three is going to feature something like this. Um, it got into a lot of trouble because you could you could play an American or a coalition soldier, but you could also play Taliban. You know, you could uh, face off with an American soldier, and so you know there was actually kind of fevered discussions on Fox News and some other places where military families, um, you know, were quite angered and incensed that a video game would allow players to, you know, uh, assume avatars that were shooting at American soldiers. Um, mm-hmm. But that's one of the features of, of video games, uh, war-themed video games these days. They're highly realistic, but they're realistic uh, to a very localized degree. They're realistic in terms of terrain and weapons and the aesthetics of, you know, gear and uniforms and even, you know, realistic situations that mimic, you know, real places in the world. Uh, But in terms of, like, providing context or motivation for why the conflict even exists, right, who's occupying whom, um, why some people, you know, might decide to defend their homes or their homeland or, you know, the motivations, you know, it's turned into a kind of capture-the-flag game at the end of the day where there are very localized types of conflicts and contests uh, that crowd out any kind of reflection about what context might have provoked this conflict in the first place. Right. You know, um, I guess that's, you know, I'm I'm thinking back on all that, particularly is like, you know, you don't hear any outcry about the fact that, you know, they're making uh, the people you're shooting at look like realistic Arabs. You know, they, you don't hear any outcry for the other half of that. And I'm not saying that it's any better that Arabs or white people or whatever we're creating the avatars to look like are getting shot. That's actually uh, a poignant point that I, I make that is sometimes kind of controversial in my Internet activism is that when people get all up in arms about Gaza, and don't get me wrong, I'm up in arms about Gaza too, I don't really look at that as... Uh, quite the same way as other people do because there are still completely peaceful people who live in Israel who get blown up, who have nothing to do with any of the stuff going on in Gaza um, by random members of Hamas strapping bombs to themselves and blowing themselves up in, you know, Israeli coffee shops. The the problem is war in general. You know, the, the idea that this is the means by which we have to achieve any kind of social end um, and that somehow we think that it works when it really doesn't. I mean, it does for the winter for a while, but we're seeing how that's working out here in the United States. We're getting, you know, less and less, uh, basically, you know, we're getting less and less popular, you know, around the world. That could possibly have some economic problems for us, you know, uh, and that's, um, you know, Especially like, you know, because I've heard, for example, they're talking about not accepting the dollar for their exchanges anymore because they're getting tired of American imperialism. Um, In that Iraq conspiracy film that I watched, there's actually a British BBC documentary. I know it says conspiracy, so people would immediately assume it was hokey, but I thought it was actually really well done. 
um, they pointed out that Saddam Hussein was seriously considering changing his um, uh, oil trade to the euro, and that that likely had a lot to do with the motive for invading Iraq. Um, you know, those are the kinds of global implications for what happens. You know, uh, if we do all of this, you know, and that's um, <laughs> honestly, in in some ways, you know, I like it, and in some ways, I don't. I mean, I really wish, for example, I could go to Iraq and get a feel for what it is that we've done there. Um, I'd be worried that I'd get targeted for the things that other people had done. Obviously, you know, it would be difficult. That's why. For that documentary film, Meeting Resistance, I think I told you about this two British um, journalists risked their lives to go and interview members of the you know resistance in Iraq. And the consistent story that they heard was, no, we're not Ba'athists. In fact, if I found a Ba'athist, I'd probably shoot them. Um, the Ba'ath Party was not good for us, but... I would kind of like my water to work again. I would like my electricity to work again. I would like my babies to stop being born um, with cancer. Not born with cancer, but they develop cancer at very young ages. They're born deformed frequently uh, due to the depleted uranium that is managed to, that we've released in the desert. Um, so it's getting all over the place, okay. uh, you know, in that dusty climate. You know, it's, those are the, those are the elements of the situation that they don't talk about. And, gets his best left off the table when that's um, basically, I mean, especially the fact that that was the part of it. And that was actually another thing from the, the earlier part of the film that you talked about, you know, like with the first fellow, when that, that kid was like, you know, you're trivializing the death of my brother because his brother had died as an Iraq, um, as a soldier in Iraq. And, um, you know, the guy pointed out, no, these video games, where you're playing a soldier running around getting shot, trivialize the death of your brother. And I was a, I think that was a really important counterpoint. I'd be interested to hear that interview, to hear what, how the kid reacted to that. It wasn't in the film, but still, I don't understand what answer he would have had about that. You know, if you're going to be upset that somebody put their name, you know, put your brother's name, you know, when he died and where in a video game about, you know, Iraq, because that's basically what America's Army is. It's about Iraq and Afghanistan and the various adventurers in the United States is engaging in. Um, why aren't you upset that they have a video game where you're going in and, you know, you can shoot at, as you pointed out, American-looking avatars, you know, um, where you were playing one and getting shot at over and over again, you know, wherein the circumstances, the unfortunate circumstances of your brother's death are a portion of a game. You know, I, I guess that's one of the reasons that I'm I'm happy that I watched your films because it enabled a transformation um, and uh, enabled a transformation for me to be able to see the, the truth of that matter for what it really was, which was that essentially trivializing death, making it part of entertainment, um, and also in a ways of, you know, ensuring, you know, as you pointed out, militainment, ensuring that we support wars, even if they don't have any justification, because they're cool. You know, like you pointed out when we did the first invasion, it was pretty. You know, they didn't show us that that's another aspect of that. They showed us those pictures of the explosions. You included those in the film, the first explosions. Um, you know, um, and they don't show, that's another thing. They don't, they don't show what happened at ground zero of those explosions, obviously. You know, they don't take you to the scene afterwards, which, I mean, it wouldn't be very practical for any journalist to do that anyway. But 
you know, I still remember seeing some pretty graphic pictures of Uday um, and uh, Saddam's other son. I always forget his name. Um, yeah, Hussein. You know, they were both dead, you know, and just you know, blown to smithereens. I mean, they were mutilated. And I remember being shocked about the fact that they even let us see that, you know. But because they were some of the bad guys, you know, that was good. It was okay to see them blown up. They were bad people. You know, and don't get me wrong. Uday Hussein, the reason I remember him is because he had some pretty – well, bad habits, from what I understand, including, you know, raping girls and stuff like that. So, you know, he certainly wasn't a model citizen, but it's interesting that they, they put all of that stuff together and, and they're very specific about what they'll let you see. And I don't think that anybody has ever really fully put it together in their heads and grasped that we are playing a video game wherein we are simulating the death of another person. You know, I'm not going to repeat myself too much, but... You know, somebody's brother, somebody's mother, you know, somebody's somebody, you know, somebody who somebody cared about, had dreams, interests, their favorite music, their favorite color. None of that is in any way factored into the equation. The things that make us real living beings are not factored into the equation. I think a really interesting film that some of your viewers, your listeners might be interested in uh, if they can find it. It's called Deadline Iraq. It was produced by the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company. And, you know, you make the point that, you know, often in, in war zones, especially when heavy bombing has been done, it's tough to get in and see the aftermath, what happened on the ground. And there's a, there, there's a couple of, I suppose, exceptions to that rule. One of them is Peter Turnley, the photographer, who went in and photographed the Mile of Death, uh, which is the strafed Iraqi army. And, you know, there are a lot of civilians involved in that, too, the sort of long line of retreating uh, civilian and military vehicles when Saddam Hussein pulled out of Kuwait, basically strafed, and that's where you get all these pictures of charred bodies in, in trucks and, and whatnot. Um, there are some moments, you know, uh, Uday and Kusei Hussein, where, you know, the effects on the body are visible suddenly. But it, I don't think it's uh, because, you know, the lack of this kind of imagery is not because reporters don't have access to it or that, you know, that uh, uh, this, this this kind of footage is not available. It's available, and you, I suppose if you scour the right corners of net, you can find it very easily. But the reason I mentioned this film, Deadline Iraq, is, is because it sort of features all of the stuff that these reporters, you know, embedded reporters and unilaterals had collected and they basically tell the story of how they, you know, experienced these horrific things. They got it on tape. They could tell these stories. Um, but by the time they got to their editors and presented them with the, the photo or the story, uh, whatever they wanted to tell, um, you know, they, they could not get through that filter. They could not get through that wall that protects the, you know, British and American citizen from seeing the body. You know, the body has to be hidden and, uh, news organizations know exactly what they need to do in order to maintain access to uh, the um, military leadership, to main a maintain access to the battlefield and the stories that are coming from the battlefield. Um, they have to please that military leadership, and one way of pleasing them is hide the body. And that's exactly what they did. So it's not exactly the, you know, the case that those bodies are not available to reporters. 
um, they reach a certain level and then they are filed away and never seen again until something like WikiLeaks um, makes the story um, and makes the story tellable by mainstream news. Right. That's the same thing with those uh, um, prison photos. You know, the, the photos of what we're doing to have prisoners in you know in a Guantanamo and places like it. That's another one of those things that I don't see anybody ever contemplating what it would be like to be in their shoes. You know, to see the things that are being done in our name uh, like that, you know. And then, uh, remember all that crap they put that poor guy through who released those photos of um, the reverence that they treat the uh, the coffins with, you know, and the flags? I'm, I think you, you probably remember what I'm talking about. They were very tasteful photos, um, and ironically, a mother of a of a fallen soldier was really upset that they went after the guy because she was so pleased to see the the respect and the you know all that that they treated you know the fallen soldiers with you know saluting the the coffins with the flags on them you know and but they did but it was so important to the media and to the government that the concept that people are actually dying here was not part of the uh, the conversation. Um, and without a draft, you know, it, it's pretty easy to forget that. You know, that is one thing that the Vietnam War had that we don't. It was a little hard for people to ignore, the, you know, the Vietnam War because of the draft. You know, you never knew. A any young person you knew, your son, you know, you even, might get pulled over there whether you agreed with the war or not. And uh, that made it more real for some people. And as you pointed out, the differences in the way that the media handled it, you know, um, but I mean, uh, you do remember the the photos I'm talking about, right? Well, I think you're talking about uh, you know Bush one and also the Clinton administration Bush two put a ban on press access to returning U.S. coffins. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. And some of these uh, coffin photos snuck through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you remind me of something else too. Um, boy, what did you remind me of? <laughs> Oh, never mind. Um, maybe it'll come back to me. <laughs> well, we were talking about um, we were talking about uh, let me see, the Vietnam War and how it was changed, you know, and the the draft. Oh yes, uh, oh yes. Um, in in I think it was 2003, uh, and it was kind of a, a protest move by a couple of senators, Democratic senators. They decided decided to, in the midst of all the talk about the potential reintroduction of a draft to introduce a bill that would require universal service by everyone who turned 18 in the United States would be kind of like the Israeli system or some of the Scandinavian systems where they require everybody to spend a little bit of time in the military, a uh, universal service bill. And, of course, um, you know, that didn't go over very well. It didn't go over very well for people who didn't want the draft. Um, and, and even some of the senators that introduced the bill voted against it, but it was sort of a symbolic gesture, uh, because right now we have, you know, we don't even have a draft, as you mentioned, and we've got a very stratified U.S. military that is very reliant on uh, lower-income recruits, and then is also shifting uh, much of its manpower into the private sector, into private military contractors. So the... Uh, level of investment and involvement the average American citizen has in the military has dropped significantly. We either think of it as a private contractor endeavor 
you know, a corporate endeavor, or we think of it as something that poor people do when they can't find a job. And uh, the idea that, you know, a middle-class John or Jane Doe's son or daughter might be drafted or might have to, you know, be transported to some conflict around the world because of perhaps universal service rule or something like that doesn't exist. And, you know, you have to wonder, like, what effect does this have on our national psyche? How much more willing are we to pull the trigger when the president says, hey, let's go to war somewhere, let's occupy some other country, uh, than if we were to have a universal service requirement where every son and daughter uh, were, um, you know, required to put in some time in the military? You know, how much more of an ethical foreign policy would we have? How much more would we care about having 50,000 or 100,000 people still stationed in Iraq in a very dangerous area, or 25,000 right. in Afghanistan. That would be a very different situation. That's something that Jacques Fresco talked about, is that, um, you know, uh, we should institute that if you're going to, you know, if we're going to have a draft, then absolutely everybody um, gets drafted, including all of the members of Congress and all the members of the Senate and the President. Everybody gets to serve. Um, you know, that was... Uh, you know, and he said that he, you know, with that kind of system in place, you're obviously going to have a country that's going to be considerably less interested in going to war, because you know, uh, in Vietnam they would protect the rich kids by uh, allowing them uh, to say, well, I'm not going because I paid for college, you know, mm-hmm. um, and now it's more of a matter of, you know, uh, basically just as we said earlier that the people who are getting pushed into it are the ones who can't find, you know, a gainful employment anywhere else. Um, and that, and that's tough. Um, in particular, uh, fortunately enough, none of my friends who have went into the military have, uh, have gotten hurt as of yet. But I remember, uh, one little shocker was we were talking to this friend of mine named Mike and he was over there and he's a really nice guy. He's got a little, you know, a little, Kid, a little boy and a nice young wife, and he joined because he couldn't find money anywhere else, you know. And um, at one point, I'm talking to him on AOL Instant Messenger (AIM), and uh, basically, um, you know, we're talking and talking, and he goes, "Br," you know, like "brb," meaning "be right back," AFK. And then he comes back like ten minutes later, and I'm like, "So what was that about?" And he's like. The tent next to me exploded, and I was like, "Holy shit, dude!" <laughs> Sorry for the S-bomb again. You you took the time to type BRB, you know, AFK, you know, when the the tent next to you exploded, and he was like, "It happens all the time," you know, just all casual about that, you know. Um, uh, just once again, it's it, it's a different world when you're over there, and that's why. Uh, particularly when soldiers come back and try to interact with civilians, it is hard for them to take us seriously, especially when you consider some of the civilian populace in the United States are extremely spoiled. Their idea of a crisis is, I couldn't get my Xbox. You know, they ran out of them at Walmart on the opening day of Christmas shopping. I'm going to be angry about that, and I'm going to flip out about that, and I'm going to you know, or maybe the the person who I liked for American Idol didn't get a you know didn't win. You know, these are the things that civilians tend to think are important to them. You put a soldier into that situation, and they're just lost. Like, seriously, you know, really? You you think that's a big deal? You know, 
how are they supposed to relate to that society? It's not just about the violence. It's just about the, the total difference in attitude. And the other thing, I, I had another guy, a uh, kid who very clearly um, could not function outside of the military. Uh, he got in at a young age, and it was pretty clear that he was that kind of personality because he got in trouble with the law a couple times, things like that. And uh, he had gotten out and was spending time with us at our live-action role-playing game, and uh, he said he wanted to go back. And I was like, why would you ever want to go back? And he said, well, the military takes care of everything. You've always got a roof over your head. You've always got, you know, food in your belly and you've got insurance. You know, he's, you know they take care of you. And I'm just like, yeah, and they put you in the line of fire, you know. But it didn't even occur to him. He was so dependent on the military system. It was like It was like a prisoner who's gotten out of prison after being in prison for like 40 years or so. You know, he could not handle life in a situation where he was not being uh, taken care of by the military. Um, and it's it's tough that, you know, that this is happening to people and that, you know, it's unfortunate also that I think that most people are not really going to grasp what this is like in their lifetime. And they will in turn go and vote for politicians who will take other people to war you know, without ever any understanding of what that means or what they're doing when they do so, especially that generation you're talking about that has forgotten about the war in general. You know, they don't even contemplate what that means because it's nobody that <coughs> it's nobody they know. <coughs> um, sorry about that. <laughs> but um, in any case, um, so. Uh, do we have any future projects on the horizon? Yeah, well, you know, I was just talking to another filmmaker, actually a group of people who are working on some larger projects. Uh, one of them is called War 2.0. They're interested in information warfare and uh, generally how information, culture, uh, the image, and other kinds of immaterial symbolic activities have been translated into weapons or become thought about as weapons of war, um, the net and uh, you know infrastructure of media has been translated into a kind of weapon. So they're thinking theoretically about that, uh, and they've already done quite a bit of work. I've been invited to go on a um, a, a trip to uh, uh, Western. Pakistan, uh, where much of the drone warfare is happening right now. There's a you know huge kind of secret war that Obama is waging over the border of Pakistan from Afghanistan, and most of it involves the use of drone planes. And we've gotten hooked up with a number of people who live in these tribal areas, but also the cities that are east of these tribal areas. And they talk incessantly about the steady stream of civilian casualties that are filling up their hospitals. Um, these drone warcra uh, warcraft are constantly flying overhead. There's a steady buzz and just a general presence and anxiety about where uh, these aircraft are going to hit next. And there, like I said, is a steady stream of civilian casualties that um, are being transported to the cities into the hospitals. So we've made contact with uh, journalists who are working in this area and investigating the extent of the damage that drone warfare has caused, and also people who are working in these hospitals who are taking care of these 
this constant stream of victims that is flooding the hospitals right now. In, Pakistan uh, is kind of the Cambodia of the Afghanistan conflict. Um, that's, that's a pretty good analogy, yep. Yeah, that, that country that we're not actually in, you know, supposedly, I mean, the, we can't actually be in it because I guess they have nuclear weapons. Um, I watched a documentary called Rethink Afghanistan, and it laid out the situation. And it's actually kind of silly. I mean, there's nothing silly about war, obviously, but the absurdity of the situation when it comes to the border of Pakistan is that, you know, we're accustomed in the United States to borders being something that's established. There's road signs, there's, you know, there's different, you know, maybe a checkpoint or something, you know. Uh, um, and basically, uh, the the notion of crossing a border in that circumstance is so crazy because they they point out where the borders are in this film, but you if you had not been told, you'd have no idea where you were. It's just a big desert, you know, um, featureless. There, there's not even. I mean, it's just it looks the same everywhere you go. I mean, I imagine people who live there could probably figure it out, but still, you know. So, I mean, I also remember uh, um, you were talking about possibly being in Peter's new film about war. Did you guys communicate any further about that yet? Uh, no, we haven't talked too much about that. Okay. Well, I look forward to that for sure, and it'll be good to have you know um, you in one of his films. And since it's about a topic that obviously you can easily get behind, there won't be any conflicts there. Um, you know, and well, thanks again, Roger. We're, we're down to the last five minutes, and um, uh, I hope that I didn't babble too much. Having a fever on the radio is certainly unique. Uh, experience, but um, no, it didn't slow you down at all, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, you know, once again, thank you for doing the work that you're doing. You know, you know, as a professor, I'm sure you could be doing a lot of things that would, you know, rake you in a lot more money than making activist films that, you know, uh, are never going to be appreciated for their full, you know, worth by most people. As sad as that is, but it is a step in the right direction to opening people up, and it certainly helped open me up. So, um, uh, thanks again. And, you know, everybody, uh, if you check out my blog uh, there, you will see I have the trailer to the film at the top. You can read the um, the review itself. And then at the very bottom, there's a link to a website wherein you can reserve a copy of the film. It will be, or maybe is it is it already out today? I'm trying to remember when the release date was. Yeah, the DVD is available right now. Um, okay, it's good. also uh, on track to uh, appear in the European documentary TV market. So hopefully that goes through. Uh, but right now, if you are interested in having a sneak preview of it, I believe the link that you provided on, on your review goes to the Media Education Foundation site that hosts the film. Right. And there you can watch the entire thing with a big watermark on it that says for preview use only, but you can get a sense of what the film is like. Right. All right. Um well, thanks again, and um, I'm going to go ahead and end this segment, Roger. And as always, it's a pleasure to have you on. Keep your, you know, keep up the good work. It's a pleasure Th to be on. Thanks for coming to V Radio. All right, thanks. folks, go ahead. Was there something else, Roger? Oh, I said thanks, Neil. Oh yeah. Here's some words from John Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is John Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.